Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today I am joined by Inge Zwick, Executive Director at Empata Global, a premium offshore staffing solutions and talent recruitment company. And I've asked her to join us here today to help us run all of our teams better. Inge, how are you doing, my friend? Yeah, we're doing good. Good afternoon. How are you, Daryl? We're good. We just had a nice talk about the decisions we made in our life. She recently just moved to Italy. And it's been a long journey to get there, having to set things up and the teams and get her things in order and just how we're so grateful for the decisions that we've made and how they we've played out. You can see the giant smile on her face that she's really happy with what she's done. And I'm really grateful that you can be here because obviously you've accomplished some things and I think our listeners will really benefit from it. But before we jump into this, before we get into traveling around the world, working in different cultures managing teams of thousands of people. How did you even get started? Do you come from a family of entrepreneurs and business leaders or? Uh, yeah, I suppose my, my dad is was or is an entrepreneur, but I actually got started in the hospitality industry, also from my family background. And I was very young when I decided I wanted to be a hotel manager. Hmm. I think I was like 10 or 11 years old. And stuck with it, went to hotel school, did all the education and work experience to to reach my goal of becoming a hotel manager. And so that's what got me started and what got me, what brought me away from my hometown in Italy to different countries across the world and eventually to the Philippines, where I now work with an amazing team. Which is fantastic. So you wanted to start off as a in hotels and you got traveling around the world. So you were first working with different hotels. Is that part of why you were traveling in that or? Yeah, that's right. So I did a formal hotel education in Italy as well as in Switzerland. And when I graduated from that, I was recruited by a hotel chain as a corporate management trainee, the Hyatt Hotels. And that initially had me started in Germany as a hotel a corporate management trainee. And upon graduation of that program, I got sent to Dubai. And then after that, every two, three years, we were sent on a new location with Hyatt Hotels. Mm. And oh, so hi. that was really exciting to be a part of a big uh, global enterprise company. But yet in every country, you're still working with the local team and the local company. And so it was an amazing place to really start a career and grow, grow the career ladder pretty quickly. And yeah, I guess that's how it all started. Which sounds fantastic. And again, obviously you've done very well for yourself, but what were some of the biggest challenges in your career? Obviously first you're just starting somewhere. Where did you start out? Did you just, Hey, here, run and manage this hotel. Like where in the ranks did you start out? And again, what were some of the challenges that you faced as you, did you try to climb the ladder in those, in that company? 
I think I really probably led a, a career by the book in the sense I started as a trainee in hotels. Every In the summer breaks between school years, I would start firstly as a babysitter, then as a server, as a cook, as a receptionist, really trying out all those aspects of the hotel business. And then once my formal education was done, yeah, going into management trainee, receptionist, mm. uh, then a restaurant assistant manager, restaurant manager. So really, yes. Do it, climbing the ladder one job at a time, but really quite structured in the sense, in the structure of a hotel, a big hotel, I really just went up and up, very structured and just happened to switch countries in between as well. Got it. So what was some of the challenges of going from country to country? Because obviously Um, the culture is different. Yeah, the culture as well. For me, it's also at the beginning of my career was also my age. I was when I moved to Dubai, I was 22 and Mm -hmm. I was an assistant manager. And so because of the strong education I had received in Europe and of course, all the these trainings that I had received, I was really well trained already. Hence, I believe I was well fit to be an assistant manager, but I was suddenly managing teams of 100, 200 people who were men. Actually, most Mm -hmm. of them were older than me. So at the beginning of my career, my age was certainly a challenge in the sense that I was probably felt I was capable. I don't know, it's for my peers Mm -hmm. to judge, right? But I felt I was capable. But as you're young, you also, you think you know better and you want to do everything right away and quickly. And I had to learn the hard way to, not the hard way, but I had to learn to keep up with my surroundings and integrate the teams around me different ages, different cultures, different way of communicating, but also, I suppose, as a leader or as a future leader for myself, catching up with my development. So what do you, and that's a great point that you spoke to, and you talked about like different cultures, different ages. So can you give an example, like someone that is unaware, what would be an example of having to speak to a different culture, like two different cultures differently, and even just different age groups? How would you approach that? In terms of the age groups, it's always a matter of respect as well. But across cultures, that also differs. In Asia, for example, rank and seniority in terms of positions is is very important. And so when you hold a certain position, you automatically have a certain standing. And by that position, you're able to perform your duties versus, for example, in Europe, the position is not as important. It's real. People will still challenge you and question you, even if you're the leader of the organization, because in the culture in Europe, it's more about the individual performing and hence it's okay to challenge versus in Asia, you're not immediately challenged as a leader. However, you still have to work very hard and gather the consensus of your team and con- make sure that they will want to work with you. It's not just because you're the leader, they'll do everything you want to do. You still need to bring them on board. And, and I found that when I was new to managing cross-cultural team, I went about it as you would well, in a very traditional way. Yeah, exactly, right? Like I would just talk to everyone straight and tell them what to do or ask them for their opinion. And I, for example, I remember very early on in Dubai, I would ask some of my team leaders in Dubai about their opinion on how we should set things up. And it's not that they didn't have an opinion, but they were really surprised that I would ask them about it. So they thought that I didn't know. So me trying to include them and bringing them into the decision making process as we would do in Europe they thought that was a sign of weakness. weakness. And so they thought, oh my God, oh. the new manager doesn't know what to do. So they got so nervous about 
about me there because they're like, oh my God, she doesn't know what to do and what are we going to yeah, do? And so yeah. that created a bit of a stir until I realized I had to become more assertive. I had to make the decision, which I knew the right thing to do. I was just different way. I was just used to a different way of working. And so, yeah, those are the the few things. And funny story, I remember after being in Dubai for a few months and it's, I just started to catch ground on working with my Asian teams and it worked really well. I I got a new European team member and suddenly I had somebody on my team who questioned every move I did, brought in his own opinions. And was, I had a culture shock. shock reverse, with my reverse culture, culture shock. Reverse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I was suddenly, I was like, what do you mean? It was so oh, surprising because I, I had just gotten around to finally getting my way around to how to do things that it was just going so well. And here he comes, challenges every one of my move. And I had to justify everything I did. And I was like, what's going on? That's then so I realized, funny. oh, that's what I do to my boss on a daily basis. There right. you go. I remember I lived in Japan for three years. And when I first went, um, I lived in Tokyo for three years. When I first went, I was like, culture, I, people were like, you're going to have some culture shock. And I was like, culture, schmulture, we're all humans. <laughs> we all have hair and hearts and we're kumbaya. I was just like, so like you, like young and naive. And then when I got there, there was like, I, it hit me. And then I was there for three years. So obviously I managed. And I remember on the flight back, my like going back to Canada, there was an American airline. I forget which one it was, but the steward. He, or the stewardess, I guess it was a woman, but they were just, I felt like they were so rude. If I've ever time for food, because in, in like our culture, you have three levels of etiquette. You have polite, casual, and then like rude type thing. But in Japan, they have five tiers of etiquette and the top three are different, like extremes of polite. And so I just remember like the stewardess was like, it was mealtime, like chicken or beef. What do you, what would you, I just felt like she was like, what do you want? And I was like, <gasps> You spoke to me so like I just I don't know because in Japan they'd always be like excuse me sorry sumimasen excuse me hey hey could I trouble you I remember when I first got there I was I went to this international grocer I was looking for a mango chutney and I've been there like a couple of months and I was like mango chutney what doko this guy like where I speak Japanese like where's mango chutney and the lady at the counter was like right now is a little and I'm like what you got it or yes or no and she I remember she was just like like looking around her like nah and she was so like for being direct and telling me no because. When she had said, oh, right now is a little, I'm supposed to let her save face and jump in and go, you know what? I have to check some other place, save face. I'm not supposed to push them for a direct no. That's a rude thing. And I just had no idea. Anyways, you just talked about reverse culture shock. And I just, first it hit me, the culture shock. I just, and then when I went back, I remember I was, I'm sorry, I know this is your interview. Last thing. But I remember when I was in Japan, I was like, oh, I can't wait till I go back to Canada because I'm just. I'm having a lot of miscommunications here because they don't speak English and I'm just learning Japanese. I know when I go back to Canada, all that will disappear. <laughs> and I go back and everyone's speaking English. And there's Except still- it won't because yeah, you yeah. will have changed. Yeah. And right? that's so, it's so funny. I'm like, what is going on here? I'm speaking English now. Why are we having miscommunications? So that's a, that's a fantastic example of culture stuff. So that was culture. How about age? How would you treat different generations differently? That also has changed ever since, right? Just recently, we were talking about it at work on the Gen Z and the Gen Y and how everybody needs to be treated differently. And I suppose it has always been the case, right? Different generations have different ways of working and different ways of communicating. And so when I started out, it was 
firstly, I was a woman, a young, young woman in an Arabic country as a leader. So there was a lot of a cultural intense. as well as age. Yeah. No, it was, no, it was really fine. I was in a very oh, lucky okay. position in a safe environment in, in a global corporation. No, it was really fine, but certain challenges. But I would say nowadays with age, I always... As I'm getting older as well, I think it's giving, taking the energy of the younger generation and, and still giving respect and reaping the benefits of the older generation and the experience that they bring. I suppose bringing those two together is always the critical aspect. And how do you do that best? If there was one way to do it, I'd love to know it. So I don't know if you have any tips there, but from my perspective, it's just been about that general, yeah, that general black and white there's no black and white you have right. to try to combine both and mm -hmm. and give them both the respect that they that they've earned for their respective thing and for us we do this on a daily basis because we have quite a young team most of our team members now in the philippines or colombia or macedonia they're probably all between let's say 25 and 40 so it's not all about probably 80 percent of our team members are rather young and so that's one type of work. Mm -hmm. And then we have, of course, very experienced senior executives, but also senior professionals, wh whether it is web developers or whether it is project managers, encoders, AI specialists, like really senior people who are, who themselves already have grown up kids and already have mm -hmm. led extensive careers. And of course, they don't want to be engaged and they don't want to be talked to and indoctrinated in your company in the same way as a 25 year old would who, for whom it is maybe the second job in their right. life. Trying right. to create content and engage team members across ages as well is still something that on a daily basis we're trying to figure out. Even just, I do a lot of corporate communications with my team and writing something so that it is interesting and relevant to a 25-year-old as well as a 45, 50-year-old. It's not easy, but it's something we... I strive to master. I don't know. Yeah. Haven't yet, but we're on the way. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really valuable. Now, I mean, how, what do you do, how do you do that, Daryl? You worked, um, you interview so many executives, also not just different age, but experience level. Well, what do you do to keep content relevant for different age and experience levels? Yeah, that's a good point. I also, because I also write an email newsletter that goes out to 10,000 business professionals of varying the age group for them too. I, we've got uh, I'm not, obviously I don't have complete analytics on them, but we do have an older demographic that's present, but it's mostly, like you said, between 25 and 40. It's tough. I always try to begin with the outcome in mind, and then it depends on the person's personality. So I've got, even on my own team, I have some people that they're like, just give me the baby, just give me the baby. And then I have some people that are really emotive and they want to talk or they want more small talk. And so it depends. It's almost like a, you have to get to know the person. And then with these interviews, to be honest, I probably just try to keep focused on the questions and bumble through it. Like, I know I actually mispronounced the company name at the beginning, and I, I apologize for that. And Emata. Did I say that right? That there we go. There we go. I don't yep. know why it's a tongue <laughs> for me. But it's at the end of the day, it's trying to keep the goal the goal. There's a great story. I forget where it was, but it, it's, uh, it was in a book that I read, and they were talking about competitive rowing, like dragon boat racing, perhaps. And they're talking about this one team, they really wanted to win and they brought in a meditation coach to help them all like work together in sync and all this stuff. And what ended up happening is that they were so in tune, but they lost the race because they were more focused on being in sync than they were on achieving the goal. Whereas when they were before, there would sometimes be conflict. One person might yell at the other, hey, you're slacking, pick it up type thing. But they were like, they consistently ranked. They were consistent winners. And to try and maintain an edge, they brought in this meditation coach to help them focus on 
team building and synergy and everybody getting along together and in sync and cohesion. And they end up losing the big race because they were too focused on getting along with each other versus the outtime goal. And that's maybe like a bit of a metaphor to say, how do we do it? And it's just really keep focused on the objectives on the, what we're trying to do. I actually want to find out one of the, about you I'll share first, but one of the things that helps is with my team, I do something called three key metrics. So every department and role, we help try to define three key metrics. And some of that's intangible, which we try to define like excellent. And we try to write like what it looks like if done at an excellent level versus done at a poor level on a scale of one to 10. And then the weekly, the weekly one-on-ones, the weekly sync ups with either the department or the individual where myself or my, my, the manager would rate them and then they would rate themselves. And if there's a difference in number, we would talk about why is there a difference? And maybe it's just because some people are, some people regularly are generous and some people are regularly conservative, or sometimes there's a difference in the quality output as far as the perspective on it. And I find that really helps. And because I know as a business owner, when my, when everything's going great and I'm making lots of money and I love my team, but when I wake up and I have a bad day, sometimes I don't like my team, but it's purely subjective to the weather, not necessarily how they're actually performing. And so the three key metrics really helps keep it objective. And there's been instances where I've had team members. There's been two things. One, I had a manager. She tried to change the score to make it easier to hit because we had a staff member that wasn't able to score well. And I told her that defeats the whole purpose of having a score. And so we fixed that. And then she was consistently, the man, not the manager, but the person was consistently unable to score above an eight out of 10. And so we actually ended up putting her, taking the, helping her do an aptitude test. And then we put her in a position that she was better equipped for. And she started hitting nines every week when she worked with me for a number of years before moving on to another company and a, a higher position than I had available. That, that's just an example of how to negate that. And it comes back to what's the goal? What are the metrics that we want you to hit? How do we want you to show up and perform every day? And then the rest is just, I think a lot of it is just personal etiquette, being polite, showing, caring about their day. If you hear about a relative being ill, like checking in on them, like the human aspect, that's how I feel. And there may be pros and cons with that. I also try to automate as much as I can. I don't know if that might be a strike yeah. against me. That might be a strike against No, me. no, that's uh, the question for me always with automation is, and I will come back to that point on KPI as well, but when it comes, we want to automate, automate. Of course, we agree. We have a department that focuses, an operational transformation team that focuses around mm. automating processes. But we, I think like many companies and actually many organizations I've worked for, sometimes there is an automation. It almost feels like an automation for automation's sake. And yeah. then what ends up happening is that the people around them have to work around that automation and yeah. it didn't actually solve the problem. So yeah. before going into automation, for me, it's always uh, about defining the problem statement, mm -hmm. looking at what's currently in place and what actually needs to be automated and why. And is automation really the solution? Because of course, ultimately, it sounds like, yeah, the more you automate, the faster you are, the yeah. more people can focus on other things. But the reality oh, is, true. if yeah. automation is not execute, executed properly or not thought through, it often ends up causing or creating more manual processes around it. I don't know if you can yeah. relate, but no, I've seen this happen time and time again across my career. A hundred percent. Garbage in, garbage out. I know people that I've talked to, they're like, oh, I'm going to launch this business. It's going to be automated from the start, but you got to have something. So it's a crawl, walk, run. You got to do it manually first. And then once you have it manually, you have to break it down into systems and subsystems. And then you have to try to figure out how to automate it. Now you can occasionally take a team, which I love your name, operational transformation team. I just have a couple of, I call them my automators. 
Uh, I just throw them a wrench sometimes. I'm like, That's hey, shorter. I might steal that. <laughs> no, yours, yours is better on a business card, I think. But because it is about Trump transformation, right? It's about. Right. It is not just about bringing in technology. It's really about transforming a way of doing, transforming teams, technology, processes. It's all together. So it's it's a bit more than just automating something. Yeah, and I think the key point that you've mentioned here is that it can't be cumbersome because at the end of the day. And, and this is my personal philosophy. At the end of the day, businesses solve problems. That's why a business exists. That's a big difference between a free market and a communist country where the government exists and the government has a ton of inefficiencies. We're in a true free market, which we typically don't have. We have a lot of crony capitalism, but whatever. A true free market excellence is supposed to reign true. And so that means the most excellent provider of X and X is what people want and need restaurants. I'm hungry. I don't have time to cook. My teeth hurt. You go to a dentist. I'm bored. You go see a movie. Uh, my child needs that. I need someone to entertain and keep my child safe. That's the ball pit playground things where you drop your kid off. Like all these things are meant to solve a problem at the end of the day. And the better, the most like markets are unknown and unknowable. Meaning if I asked you how many people are in market to buy a car today, you could give rough estimates based off of Google searches and foot traffic through locations and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, you don't really know. And that number is going to fluctuate and change every day. So you can't really peg it down, seriously. But everybody can recognize excellence. So if instead your ultimate goal is to pursue excellence at providing a solution to a problem, that is probably one of the best hedges against uh, anything that I know of. Because Blockbuster and Netflix is a great example. Blockbuster was a $6 billion company. Billion, B, right? They had these movie chain stores all over the place. You go pick, spend an hour trying to pick out a movie from the wall, take it home, whatever. Netflix came up out of nowhere and ran Blockbuster into bankruptcy. Blockbuster could have hired any talent they wanted. They could have paid to develop any tech. They even had an opportunity to buy Netflix at one point, but they were disconnected from the problem people that they were solving, right? The builders built it to serve the people and deliver something. And the managers came in and they were disconnected from the market needs. And that's Ultimately, it cost them, they were ran bankrupt. When you've worked a full day, like movie watching is typically like a recreational thing. If I've been, a, if I'm a hairdresser and I've been cutting hair, standing on my feet all day, I don't want to drive to a different location and I don't want to stand in front of a wall for an hour to figure out which movie paralysis by analysis I want to get, right? To take home and rent. And then I have to remember to drop it off or they're going to ding me late fees. Netflix originally started as almost like pizza. Like you get a catalog and you order up a movie and they deliver it to your home like the convenience of it. The digital part just came as part of the automation and innovation of solving the problem at a higher level better to be more excellent, right? It wasn't about replacing jobs. It wasn't about anything other than just giving a more excellent solution. And that liberates people. People, I'm, I know I'm on a bit of a soapbox. I apologize, but people want to talk about AI right now. AI right now, I've worked with some people that are in some ways godfathers to the AI movement. And right now what we have is a really fancy calculator and accounting. Accountants and bookkeepers. And you still to... need people to use them in the sense, or at right. least not always, you don't always need people to use it depends on what it is. But it's still when you come back, when you went back earlier about the point of excellence. Yeah. My point there is always that yes, technology and AI, of course, plays a huge part in our current and future drive through excellence. But in the end, it's all there for people. It's right. for the end user. It's for, and we want to have an excellent experience. And very often that comes through people understanding 
understanding what the challenge is, people yep. understanding the need, and either they develop a technology solution towards it, or it's often the people who still deliver it. That's why for me, when we go into that topic of AI, and of course, as we're in the outsourcing industry, we're constantly being asked, right. are you guys afraid of AI? And is AI going to make your industry obsolete? And it's like the common, most common question. Right. But I don't know if that was a question on your, you're going to ask me later. Am I already jumping ahead, Daryl? No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Let's go. Keep going. No, no just kidding. But no, but it, that just got me there because I feel like in, in, in exactly the example you said, it's still great people who make this happen. And of course, who then develop solutions with technology and AI. And right. that's where I find it so exciting when you do combine the two, when you do find great people who are excited and knowledgeable and interested to in fact work on finding out what the challenge is, defining the need, and then getting them working on great solutions. That's when it's fun. That's when yeah. the transformation, and that's when it, it actually works. So right. when I hear businesses say, oh yeah, we're going to have this business and it's all going to be automated. And I'm like, it's going to be automated that it's going to be that's sometimes a two three year process where you need yes. amazing people yes. and once that it's going to be process is done you still need people to promote to drive that that technology or that solution so that's why we're not worried about being absolutely because it's great people who carry those innovations and developments yeah 100 percent. so i think this is a really good topic to talk about right now we're already cyborgs People just don't recognize it yet. Like you're using a headset to hear me and to send your voice, you know, hundreds of miles or however far apart we are. Yeah, you're in Italy. So hundreds, thousands of miles around the world this, where it comes through the phone line and it goes up the power, comes out my computer. We are already cyborgs. We are using extensions of our physical reality, our physical selves in order to communicate, to send files to each other. We're already cyborgs. It's just not plugged into our hardware right now. AI is no different right now than a calculator where with bookkeepers and accountants, they used to have to crunch the numbers themselves. And then calculators came out and the productive ones became more productive. And the non-performers had no excuse for why it was taking them three days to punch in numbers. You know what I mean? Because they could have done it and a calculator would be done in five seconds. So it is disruptive, but it also is liberating because for a lot of accountants, it enabled them to get out of the grunt work of doing 12 times 12 and instead be able to just get the results faster and start doing like looking at the data, looking at the forecast, producing more reports and more trends. So in some ways it is a leveling up. I'm not a believer in what some of the people, especially I'm just going to drop it in the WEF. They talk about, we're not going to need all these humans. I'm really like humans are, we are knowledge creators. We create knowledge that did not previously exist. So we can perform and even survive in environments that we could not previously. Every human is sacred and special. And some people, maybe their example, all they're there for is to be a bad example. P people didn't value honeybees. And now that they're disappearing, they're panicking because it could collapse the whole ecosystem. So I think every human has a purpose, has a value. And I think, like I said, like AIs, somebody's going to need to repair the machines. The machines can't make themselves and make other machines and maintain themselves. But it's, it is a point of, do you want to be an Uber driver? Or do you want to be a programming Uber? Which side do you want to be on? There is a question of that. There is a question of some areas, some industries may have a monopoly and a monopoly is never really good usually for the end people. Prices tend to be in, or hyperinflated. Workers don't get treated as well. So the same principles apply that have always applied. You know, and so I just think, I, yeah, I think there's a marriage. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to lean into, but the, our jobs are safe for the most part. You just, 
if you're a performer, if you're in a role that you don't like, if you're not passionate about it, if it's a grind, you're not going to survive because it is going to be disruptive. You're not going to jump in and learn the new tools quickly. You're not going to be one of the more productive people. And you should, it's an opportunity for you to hopefully get your rent paid roof and ramen and figure out what your real passion is and then go do that. And then, and now you've been liberated to do it at a higher level. That's my. That's exactly right. And for me, it's when I think about the speaking to customers or prospects or team members, the stories they tell that they're very passionate about, it's about their experiences with other people and the empathy or the ingenuity of, of a solution or something presented by a team member or the immediate response and care and understanding and acknowledgement by a team member or a customer, right? Like it's in the end, Tools are there to support us in the growth, and we yep. are obviously integrating those. But in the end, every business needs great people. And that's yeah. where I also feel really secure in, in working with amazing people that help bring that to life and carry it on. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really valid point. Now, I think this is an important one. Think, can you talk about maybe your company and its current objectives? What are you guys trying to do right now? So we are an outsourcing company originally built or based in the Philippines. We're now also operating globally. So what we do is employ team members and they then work for uh, render work for our customers. Say, for example, Daryl, your business, you need a, we just spoke about bookkeepers or accountant earlier, right? Crunching the number. Maybe you say, look, I need some help with the bookkeeping. I need my bookkeeping done in zero. What we do, we'll understand your need exactly what your systems are. Are what your processes is, what your need is. We then go out, source and recruit the suitable talent, whether it is in the Philippines, in Asia, that's our biggest delivery center where we already have 7,000 team members, or in Colombia, which is great for Spanish speaking and as well Spanish and English speaking talent on the US time zone. So really great there on CST. And then in Macedonia for European time zone and in Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Malaysia. So we're really covering Asia. And what the team members then, once we find the right candidate, we'll put them forward to our, for our customers to interview and select the appropriate candidate. They then become full-time employees of EMAPTA. We will take care of legal employment. We'll take care of compliance, HR, payroll, really making sure that they're, the team members are properly taken care of. This is not a sweatshop, oh, here, cheap version of modern slavery. It's really actually employing team members, taking care of them. They then work in our office spaces. The listeners can't see it, but I've, here my virtual background shows our amazing office. It's actually my favorite office. I usually sit up there on this high chair and work there. Yeah, you turned it off last time to show me. You're like, look, it's real. This is real. It's yeah. real. Yeah, yeah. I didn't make it up. But yeah, so our team members work in our high-grade offices, which IT security, access security, really making sure they're well looked after. But then they work remotely for your business, right? So whether it's in the US or Australia or Europe, anywhere. And it, because of technology, as you said earlier, it doesn't matter where you are, but it's about having the right person with the right skill and the willingness to do the work at the time that you need them in US hours, in Australian hours. And it works really well. So our clients really integrate their offshore team members as part of their business. They are really part of their business and their work family. They just happen to sit in the Philippines and we make sure we take care of them that they have everything. But it really brings together businesses with great people in a nutshell. Yeah. And that's yeah, what I'm no. so passionate about because we really create jobs for people who want them and who are well-skilled and they, but we, they don't have to leave their home country. I know you've all, also in the Philippines as well. So a lot of Philippine team members used to have to move abroad to, for uh, better work opportunities with 
businesses like ours, they don't have to. They can stay at home with their families and still have a meaningful global career. And it's really exciting. And of course, for the business, on the other hand, what they get great people, yeah. of course, at a fraction of a cost to what the team member costs in their respective home countries, simply because of the differences in cost of living. And so it's really best of both worlds. And yeah. I'm very yeah. passionate about it. And I think <laughs> it's even a benefit to the business owner because I've, I was once told that every business needs three core roles. You need a product person that's obsessing over excellence. You need a marketing and sales person that's obsessing about getting and keeping customers and communicating with them. And you need a finance and operations person. And what you guys do, which talk about like the HR compliance, all that stuff, that for a lot of business owners is just like nails on a chalkboard because a lot of business owners are passionate about their customers. They're passionate about what they're doing. A lot of business owners are the product people right? And then they need to hire help for the operations and all that stuff. So the fact that you do that in economies of scale, I think is a real advantage. And I think it's a real benefit because they don't have to hire a person. They're basically getting a fractional, you know, VP of HR by bringing you in. Now, I did want to ask, how do you approach employee training and development within your organization to help continue your staff to, to grow, improve and grow? It already starts with the recruitment and sourcing stage. So that's a big part of what we do is obviously recruitment and staffing and spending on the onset, really, you spoke earlier about the three KPIs that you have with your team. And we start that already that conversation with our customers when they say, oh, I need a bookkeeper or I need a graphic designer or I need help with a customer service or tech support, whatever they need help with. It's also understanding what do you need help with and what does success look like for you? So we really define it first from the customer. We define the expectation of the manager, right? Or in this case, it's our customer, but that's often what's forgotten. We often focus on defining the KPIs for the team member, which is of course critical. And we do that just like you, you mentioned in your example earlier. But what we found sometimes is missing that the customer or the manager didn't even stop to think what their expectation right, is. What do right. they actually want to achieve? Right. Oh yeah, I want them to pick up 20 calls an hour and great. Yeah. But then what does excellence look like for you? What is yeah. success for you? What do you want to achieve as a company? What is success like for you? And then bringing those two together, we do that on the onset already on the start of the engagement. So we define KPIs for the team member in alignment with the company's respective goals. Yep. We then do in the probation period, a one month, three month, five month review, similar mm. to what you mentioned earlier about sitting down with the team members talking yeah. with them about the progress and then providing the training if they're not up to speed on a certain aspect. Mm. So in our model, it's a combined effort. So the customer obviously can train on their respective processes and how they want things done in their business. Because I don't know that. I don't know how you want your team to run. I don't know how you want them to enter a new deal in your CRM. I, right. I can't teach that. But what we teach is overall leadership capabilities, general knowledge and tasks that are a bit transferable across different functions. So we do that type of training whilst the customer focuses on training on the respective time. And then it's the regular checkpoints and the regular training on both sides that keep the team members up to speed. And which also includes once a year, we have annual performance evaluation where individual training plan is developed for each team member, making sure that they don't just hit their KPIs and 
tick all the boxes. It's also about what are their aspirations? What do they want to learn? Is there an interest mm-hmm. to cross-train in another department? Is there an interest to, I don't know, learn a new language? Or in right. our example, what very often is a big interest of our team members is to have the chance to travel to the mm. team, so the customer's team in really? the US, in Australia. Yes, and we facilitate that regularly. So the team members then fly to the US, fly to Australia, to Europe, wherever our clients are, and spend a week or two training with their um, onshore on team. That's so cool. And that's incredible because it really opens up that their knowledge base, but also the team members on shore really get to experience working with their team it's members. A and experience. Some, they get to go to a new country. For both sides though. Yeah, it's not yeah. just those who travel. It's also those who get visited, who then say, wow, what an amazing person and their dedication and their interest. It actually motivates both sides. That's fantastic. Building bridges. You're building bridges. Yes. Love that so much. That's exactly right. And before the pandemic, we used to always recommend to to the customers and teams, we said, when you start an offshore team, after a couple of weeks of them starting, come over, train them in person, develop that personal relationship, and then uh, either yearly, depending on how far away the customer is, but like maybe yearly visits or twice a year. And, And we still recommend that, though, of course, with the pandemic and having worked remotely now without being able to travel for, what, two, two and a half years. Yeah. Um, it's visits are now becoming a little bit less frequent, but clients still visits and teams still fly. And every time it's just every time it's just all smiles and happiness about the amazing impact that those in-person engagements that don't have to be too frequent, but when right. they do happen, they make an impact that's long lasting. Right. I bet a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Now you mentioned leadership skills and transferable skills. So what are some examples of those that you guys train for? <laughs> Well, how we train them in a, there's, we have a whole course, we have a learning and development department that has a whole training catalog that's changed on a monthly basis. And we've just, we've actually just launched our leadership enhancement program called LEAP, where it's a combination of online and hybrid training courses. Again, for those team members who are near one of our 14 office sites, we always encourage training in person as well, because you just get the intangible as well of being next to another leader being able to ask a question in between that's a little bit less formal as well as online training courses as well and what's really what we found in leadership training it's what the the, what's most successful is the engagement with other leaders so we group Mm -hmm. leaders by their level or by their experience so for example we would put together all like accounting leaders or we would put operations managers at a certain level so that they can share best practices among them in a safe Mm -hmm. space because Mm -hmm. ultimately i remember this when i did my mba i still think that the biggest value of my mba was the engagement with other MBA students. It's the, yeah, it's about, oh my God, I can't believe you had this problem. And how did you solve that? That would never happen to me. You think until five years later, you're in a similar situation and you're like, (laughs) all right. And so really the exchange of best practices within these training courses. So it's not just a classroom, but also uh, encourages engagement between the the, the attendees. That's what's a critical factor. That's really powerful. That's a great answer. Now, I want to ask for people here that maybe are listening and maybe they already have staff or maybe they're considering getting their first few staff. It can be a scary thing because for a business, often owners are sharing their income, right? They When they hire someone, that person maybe isn't a profit center to begin with. Um, even if you're hiring like a sales rep, you're not going to expect the salesperson to go out and make sales their first day. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see your clients and other business owners and entrepreneurs making when it comes 
to hiring. You mentioned before, you know, that they weren't necessarily clear on that, but maybe you could speak to that specifically. What are the kind of top three, top five issues that you see people making? I would say not setting the right expectations or not defining their own need appropriately, which is something we obviously help clients with, and hence it's not really a problem we often encounter, but because we work against it or we support them in the sense that sometimes customers are, or anyone who was outsourcing says, oh, I just need a, I just need an accountant. There you go. And then they think sometimes, not always, that they can just find an accountant and then there you go, done. And of course, theoretically, sometimes that works. But it there is a bit more to that. You need to make sure you define what you are expecting in terms of output. What does, again, I mentioned earlier, what does excellent look like? What systems right. and business processes do you have? But also in t- work with them. I think a big mistake is, or sometimes when outsourcing fails, is when there was not enough engagement between the company or the business mm-hmm. and the outsourcing talent. They basically just oh, I'm just going to outsource it. So they think they'll just give it to that person and get it back at the end of the month and then it's done. Yeah, You might get lucky and it works, but very rarely it does. So the more engagement and the more time that goes in at the beginning to understand the team Mm -hmm. member, bring the team member on board, but also teach them about how your business, your team, how you like things done, how you work, what's the funny office joke and just bring them on the journey. That, that time that's spent at the beginning and doing that, integrating them is what actually leads to long-term success because both, firstly, the team member can catch on much faster yeah. and then really be able to be independently working pretty quickly rather than trying, having to figure it out by themselves. And the business also sees that, hey, this is a human that's now part of my team. Right. And so it loyalty from both sides happen. And yeah. that's when the long-term retention happens. So I say, yeah. I would say a big mistake just to recap is to think of outsourcing as something that you give outside. Like, just, oh, yeah. I'm just giving this away. Instead, how we actually prefer to look at it is bringing great talent or a resource into your business. Mm. Yes, the person is outside of your country, outside of your company, but if you're bringing that resource into your business and you really utilize them as talent that you're bringing in, then you're succeeding. Yeah, I think that's really important. Again, a lot of people, they love what they do and they don't want to deal with the rest of the business stuff, but for some business owners, they really just need to go get a job. And I don't mean to say that to be derogatory in any sense, but it's, it's, the goal is when you go to McDonald's, not that I think McDonald's is, anyways, they could improve <laughs> their nutrition a little bit. But when you go to McDonald's, they're never like, oh, sorry, Sally's sick today. The drive through is not available. Again, the business functions. So that way there's people on call. So that way there's someone available 24-7 to solve the problem of the market, of the person that's the customer. And so for a business owner, it's the same thing, right? You're not just, for a lot of business owners, they might either want to outsource to try to save money or they really need help. And it's, and like I said before, they need a fractional HR department, so to speak, to help them navigate that. But then they also have to recognize that they still have to participate. Like you get what you inspect. That's exactly right. With outsourcing and especially with our model, like you don't have to worry about what the labor law in the Philippines or in Colombia says. And right. that's our problem. We'll take yeah. care of that. And you that's our obligation. But it's just the participation. But having the peace of mind that in fact they are legally employed properly, that the compliance is done, that they're they're working on a secure IT equipment that's right. with proper firewall and data security and ISO certification and all of that, that the business owner really doesn't need to worry about it 
because they work with a company that takes care of it. And that's what we always say. It's a bit of a cheesy line to say, engage us so you get, you can focus on what you want to focus on and let us take care of the backend processes. And that's what we do. We take care of that. And all it takes is that engagement to say, okay, willingness to think, okay, that's great. You don't have to worry about it. We'll take care of it, but make sure you integrate the resource appropriately. Yeah. And for people, that's also, sorry, just to add, because that's also what sometimes when business owners think about outsourcing, it's what scares them or what makes them think, oh, this is too hard. I can't do this, or I don't have the time to do this, or I don't have the money to do this. But it's actually, that's what, again, the outsourcing industry solves for you in such an easy way that all we need is for you to show up and explain what you need. And then work with us and then yeah. we'll take care of the we take care of the heavy lifting we'll take care of the back office administration and none of that is something to worry for you about we just need you to show up and tell us hey this is what i need and this is the talent that i need to integrate into the business for whatever reason yeah. and then we'll find that talent and bring them to you and connect you and so it doesn't have to be hard it doesn't have to be scary And it's also nowadays not a big risk anymore. Years ago, especially in the US, a lot of business owners were really worried about, oh, what if I taking away jobs from the US? But now with the talent scarcity that you also have, it's not taking jobs away from the US. It's really filling roles that you're not able to fill, right? Filling gaps. Like I hear it time and time again that the client says, I've been trying to recruit for this role in the US for three months and they only got one application from a fresh graduate who didn't even know how to open a computer. And I'm making this up, something like that. And then what do you do? Like you need this, your business to function. You need, and what often happens is that the business owners themselves end up doing it all. They Mm -hmm. end up wearing 20 hats, doing everything from calling customers to solving problems, to developing the solution, plus doing their bookkeeping, sending invoices, something is going to fall short. And we always, I always recommend, let's start with the low hanging fruit. What are the things that you're as a leader, business leader, what are you currently doing that you really shouldn't be doing? It needs to get done, but you really shouldn't be doing it. If you're a great salesperson, then you should be selling. You should be talking to your customers and selling. You should not be creating invoices and sending invoices. Or the other way around. If it's a great finance professional and they're amazing at creating reports, then they probably shouldn't be going through the purchasing orders or whatever it is. So that's the easy solution. If you want to make $100 an hour, stop doing $10 an hour work. Exactly. But it's so logical. And yet people struggle and think, no, I can't afford or I can't do this. And I'm like, just do the math. If five of the tasks that you're doing now for the $10 task, if we give them to someone else to do them, imagine what you can do in those hours. Yeah. 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 I always say the purpose of business is to solve, figure out how to solve a problem really well. And then you make a magical black box. And this magical black box is where people come in on one end with the problem and something happens and they go on the other end and they're smiling and happy. So if you think of a dentist office, oh, I'm in pain. And they walk in one side crying and in pain and they leave on the other side with these beautiful smiles, laughing and loving life. So that black box, now that you've figured out how to solve this problem, your role as a business owner is to find everybody and anybody suffering from the problem that you solve and help them. And money is how we measure the success of that. Now, maybe that might be a little over idealistic, perhaps. We know that there's parasitic businesses out there and monopolies and crony capitalism and that sort of thing. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for most of us, that's really what we're at to do. And whether you do it or somebody else does it as a business owner, certain things need to get done. And sometimes people, the spending the thousand or whatever prevents them from making the extra 10, 20,000 because they won't let it go. 
So as a business owner, if you're really concerned about wanting it to perform and do, be done properly, creating an SOP where what the outcome is, KPIs for how to measure it, a step-by-step process for how to get done, how long it should take. And if you don't have that, companies like this will help you. That's what they will do when they hire someone. Because that's really scary. Like even just hearing this KPI, SOP, that scares so many business owners because it's like, God, I don't have time for this. Because honestly, I'm also not a fan of writing SOPs and you can scare me with that too. So I get it. And then we're always like, look, don't. So sometimes I have customers who say, oh my God, I'm not ready to outsource. I don't have processes in place. I don't have any, I'm not organized. My, my inbox is a mess. And we're like, perfect, great. That means you need the help, right? So let's get you somebody to help you clean this up because it's not you who always has to do everything, who has to write all the SOPs and all the KPI. You just need to be show, show up and be there in the process to help achieve that. But you don't have to do it yourself because that's what I think is a common misconception about business owners who are overwhelmed or just so busy and bugged down by admin tasks and think they can't get out of it because they think they are the ones who have to solve it. You don't, you just have to be there and participate. You can get additional hands and brains to help you achieve that. Yeah, you just have to be willing to show up and answer questions. And then you guys can put the rest together and then just performance evaluation and adjust. It'll never be perfect at the get-go. It's always an iterative process. Inga, you've been it's, over- it's always evolving because I often find that those businesses who have all the processes perfectly documented and it's all, sometimes it's the case then by the time it's all been all documented, the business has evolved and it's changed right. already. It's so true. it's not like those SOPs, the standard operating procedures are going to be the solution to everything. It's still... Right an ever-evolving business. So again, just bringing great people in to help with that and showing up and being willing to work with them, that's as easy as it is. Yeah, very well said. Inge, this has been such a good call. I've got a couple of pages of notes. I know people listening to this may want to go back and listen to it again to make sure that they got everything. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Ah, it's hard to know. Not really sure. No, maybe it'll come up later. Any questions that you have? (laughs) I'm just encouraging people to consider reach out. And if you need help, or if you're in the position where you feel like, oh, I, this is interesting, but I, I, it's just not for me or I'm not ready. Think again, because it's for everyone. And we've seen so many amazing impacts for our teams. And again, even for my own team, when I've hired additional help for myself, I can now focus on more high value tasks and it's just life-changing, honestly. A hundred percent. So if people do want to reach out, if they do want more info, where should they go? So if they want to reach out to me, it's inge, I-N-G-E at emapta.com or simply check us out on emapta.com. So emapta outsourcing Philippines or emapta global. You'll find us on LinkedIn. You'll find us on Facebook, all the socials, but yeah get in touch and maybe we'll put it in the show notes (laughs) m-a-p-t-a and we will put that that's right we'll put the link there but for those of you that are driving or audio only go check out e-m-a-p-t-a e-map-a-map-t-a.com it's a made-up name out of the it's an abbreviation of our founders family members um Ah. so it really ties in together with our values of we're very much family oriented and our we see our work family as our second family and yeah it's not an easy name to stay but for us we it means family to us so emapta Mapta. so go check them out and again if you want to contact her reach out and look her up on social media as well again Inge, thank you so much for coming and joining i know you've got thousands of staff that you could be taking care of your own community your own following so thank you for coming and sharing with my audience so we can all help run our teams a little bit better thanks for having me daryl